Question to begin with, how do you deal with hostility? How do you deal with hostility? Uh, of course, any hostility that we may face in this country, and Rachel's already prayed, is very small in comparison to the violence that many face around this world. Um, but what we're going to do today is to examine how many people do face hostility around us and around the world. We're going to begin by looking at two popular ways by which people do face hostility. And then we're going to if like, turn to the passage and see a third way, a third more radical, a third more loving way in how we may deal with hostility. I want us to begin, though, with a scenario, if we can. So you're going to have to use your imaginations. It's four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. It's fairly warm, so let's keep our brains active. Imagine, if you can, we, with me for just a moment. Try and think of someone that you struggle to get on with. Someone who easily annoys you. Someone who makes your life a little less peaceable than you probably would have, you know, imagined or liked. Could be a co-worker. Could be someone who just lives down the road from you, who you meet at a coffee shop or something like that. Now imagine they do something against you specifically. Perhaps they gossip about you. They take credit for something that you've done at work, but they take all the glory for themselves. Now, then imagine that this isn't the first instance. For the first instance, you're kind of willing, aren't you, say, yeah, that's okay. It was an oversight. Uh, but no, this has been a string of times that they've done this to you. What are you going to do in this, uh, this moment? Uh, it's gone beyond just kind of ignoring the situation. What do you do? How do you respond? And more importantly, what's going on in your heart at that moment? How do you feel about it? Now, one popular way that many people will respond to that kind of hostility is like this. You say to yourself, you have done something to me, and therefore I'm going to pay you back for that. And it's not just going to be a little bit, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that you learn never to do this to me again. And therefore I'm going to pay back a number of times. And we're going to really get you, if you like. And at the, at the core of that response, it's vengeance, isn't it? Uh, let me give you another second popular, and I would say more ethical response, if you like, of dealing with such a person that you have in your minds now. You, you, say, you say kind of something, you've done something to me, I'm going to pay you back. And it's a bit like this, it's an eye for an eye. There's, a, there's kind of inequity, there's a justice, the way I'm going to, whatever you've done to me, with equal measure, I'm going to pay back to you. And you justify that action, don't you, with saying it's, there's a justice to that approach, there's an equity to that approach. But at its core, whoever you are, you're seeking not to love that person or the good of that person, are you? In essence, you're thinking first and foremost of yourself. And you are enacting a form, of maybe a lesser form, but it's still a form of vengeance. Essentially, you're taking justice into your own hands and either internally as the kind of the passive aggressive or externally through the kind of the vendetta mentality, you're enacting vengeance on someone else. And in some cultures, of course, it's, it's more obvious. And we've seen that on the news. We've prayed about that today already. The passive aggressive, though, that we see in much of the office, many of the office places in which you work, is, is yes, a little bit more subtle. Yes, the accents may be slightly posher, and yes, they may have gone to the right schools and so on. But it's still motivated by the same desire 
to see another brought down and not loved, not built up. And this is the way, isn't it? Certainly in the offices and the streets and uh, the people we know around us. But is that the way, if you're a Christian here today, is that the way we ought to be? Ought that be the way that we respond to hostility in our lives toward us? Is vengeance and justice ours to wield, you know, uh, to anyone who may cross our path? There may be more or less ethical ways that we may employ to justify our thoughts and our actions. But is there another way, a more loving way, a radical and loving way? Before we get to that, and before we dive into a passage, I think it's right that we see, has that been modelled elsewhere? It might be wise to just examine Christ and how he responded to hostility in his life and violence towards him. Likewise, how did God the Father respond to hostility towards him? And you will know, because all of us are like this, at the heart of humanity and our relationship before God is that bare reality that that all of us by nature are hostile towards the creator and sustainer of this world. Whether outwardly in rebellious ways or inwardly in (coughs) passive, ignoring ways, both of those inclinations of the heart are, are hostilities towards God. But then how does God respond to us as those who are hostile towards him. I mean, he has every right, doesn't he, to enact all kinds of vengeance and retributive justice, but he could perhaps just ignore us and let us to face the consequences of our, of our hostility and our rebellion against him. But he plots another way, doesn't he? It's a loving way. It's a radical way. So instead of us getting as we deserve, that is the righteous justice of God, God ordains as Father, Son and Spirit, whilst remaining perfectly righteous and just, he ordains the punishment of our hostility to be placed onto his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father and Son and the Spirit, uh, it's a bit of kind of doctrine speak, but they are coexistent and co-eternal. That simply means that basically any decision that they make is one. They are all united in that decision. So it's not as some claim that a petulant father loves you know, his created beings more than he loves his uncreated co-eternal son. It's not cosmic child abuse, as one liberal bishop very famously uh, described it. No, this is radical, life-changing love for all who would trust that son, who decided to love us so radically that he would give his life and die on a cross to take the retributive justice that we deserve on the cross. See, when you look at the nails driven into Jesus' hands on the cross, all of us ought to see Justice being brought on him in our place, but also love being poured out onto us. So can we then, if, if God the Father has, has loved his enemies, those who have been hostile towards him, can we really love our enemies? 
The thing is, the world around us gives us no model, no example. So we look to God for the ultimate example, if you like, and we've just gone through that. Those who are nature, by nature hostile towards God have been infinitely loved in Christ's sacrifice, yes. But in a sense, we all at this moment just feel that's a bit distant. Isn't that a bit kind of too far for us to extend? Can we really be like that? So let's turn to Christ. And how he, in his humanity, lived this out. Many of us have been studying, haven't we, John, uh, John's Gospel recently. And I guess it's only a few weeks ago, but we've been looking at John 13. I don't remember it, the upper room. There is Jesus with Judas. The one who will betray him. But even in, in Jesus' sovereignty, we see he is troubled. John 13, verse 21, reads like this. Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. The troubled word there shows us that, that, that for Jesus this was emotional. It was heart-rending for him. He was going to be betrayed, but it shows, if you like, he wouldn't be emotional if he didn't love this man. The man who was going to betray him. The one who would hate him. And Jesus demonstrates that love, doesn't he? What does he do straight after those words? He reaches down a piece of bread and dips it into the food and reaches out. He's not vengeful. He's not passive-aggressive and turning his shoulder and kind of like hostile, you know, hostile back towards Judas. No, he dips his bread and reaches out to Judas in love. It's a sign of friendship and love in that culture. You know, it was obvious to everyone there, just because you, know, you might do it at dinner table now and everyone goes, oh, yeah, it's a bit of food. It, we don't think anything of it, do we? But in that time, it was love being reached out to this man. The man who was going to betray him, his enemy. And Jesus reaches out to Jesus' icy heart that was moving toward betrayal. But then sadly... We know the story, don't we, by the end of that little section. Despite Jesus reaching out to Judas, what does he do? He closes his heart. And that amazing little section at the end, in verse 30 of John 13, it simply says, and it was night. The darkness had descended over Judas's heart and he closed himself off to the love that Jesus had reached out towards him. So you see, the one who says to us today... Love your enemies. Loved his enemies. Jesus goes to the cross to, to love his enemies. Romans 5 verse 6. He died for the ungodly, for sinners, for those who are enemies to him, essentially. Even dying on the cross, what does he cry out? You know, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He loved his enemies. Which is exactly what he's going to call us to do today. In the Sermon on the Plain. Look at with me, if you can, at verse 27 and 28 of our passage. Uh, we heard it a few moments ago, but let's remind ourselves, if we can, of those uh, verses. Follow with me. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Now, in these first couple of verses, what we're seeing here is the nature of love, the characteristics of love, if you like, being spelt out. It's summarised with that first instruction, love your enemies. What follows, if you like, is kind of threefold practical application of what loving your enemies looks like. 
So let's get to our first point. It's there on your sheets. You see it, the characteristics of this radical love. But firstly, note, look how it begins. Verse 27, look how it begins. But I tell you who hear me. I tell you who hear me. Who's he speaking to? Who listens to the voice of God? Again, those of us who've been in John's Gospel will know very well, John, John 10. The sheep listen to his voice, speaking of the shepherd there. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. Jesus begins, you see here, in verse 27, acknowledging that what he's about to say, radical as it is, will only be heard, will only be understood, will only be able to be lived out by a sheep. That is, by Christians, those who follow him. And his words. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. And this is really hard. Notice there's no expectation for anyone who isn't a Christian to be able or willing to do this. But the Christian is called to love their enemies. There's an interesting choice actually here of, of, of word that we translate love there. I don't know if you, you won't have seen it in our, our translation. Or what Jesus is doing through his life, death and resurrection, if you like, is reordering the, the law of love within the new covenant which he's establishing in his blood. The new promise to his people that he establishes through his life, death and resurrection. And the word he uses here, which is really interesting, he uses the word agape, which we translate as love. There are kind of four words that we have um, in the English language, sorry, four in the original that we translate as love. The first is filial love, that's a love of friendship. The eros love, the love of passion. And the storge love, the love of natural affection. But here he uses agape love specifically for a reason. Because it is the love that isn't merited by the receiving person. Importantly, you see, this isn't the kind of love that you fall into. Now, this isn't a natural love that any of us will ever feel towards someone else. It is an exercise of the will. You choose to love with an agape love. And it's a choice that is directed by the Spirit of God as you come under the authority of the Word of God. But this loving of our enemies, those who are hostile to us, is then characterised, you see it, in those three things, in verse 27 and 28, in deeds, see that, do good to those who hate you, in our words, bless those who curse you, and in our prayers, pray for those who mistreat you. Let's think about each of those very, very quickly, and just try and apply them. Think of that person again, we've got them in our heads, there's someone with a bit of hostility there, maybe at work, maybe in the local area. Think of that person, okay? who dislikes you so much, they're hostile towards you. Now think deeds. Do good to those who hate you. Think of something you could do utterly good and kind toward that person. Something totally unmerited. It is to What an odd feeling it is to think about that. It's totally unnatural, isn't it? Even weird, you might think. But that's what Jesus is calling us to. Do good to those who hate you. Let's think about the words, bless those who curse you there. Think again of the same person. Now imagine, with all the words that you possibly can, without lying, that might be difficult, you know, that you say with as many words as possible to encourage them, to build them up, to honour them, to praise them. Again, 
doing something like that, they, they're hostile towards you, and you said all these lovely, kind things. It feels unnatural, doesn't it? Bless those who curse you. And the interesting thing about this phrase is it has no kind of previous context within the whole of the Bible. There's no, as a scholar said, there's no antecedent for this. There's nothing in the Old Testament that comes close to this kind of ethic. Oh, an eye for an eye is in the Old Testament. But now in Christ, we're to bless those who curse us. Do you see how radical this kind of love is? Look how loving your enemies works out in regard to prayer, though. Pray for those who mistreat you. And you see how he's bringing all of these things, these three things together. They work together in, the, in how you love your enemies. Because it's difficult to speak and act towards someone who is hostile towards you. It's very, it's very difficult, isn't it? If, if you spent all night, you know, if it's very difficult to be vengeful towards them or hostile towards them if you've been up all night praying for them. which may be a good lesson for all of us. This is an extraordinary, supernatural love, if you like, that Jesus is speaking of here. And if you're anything like me, you're kind of worried and you're thinking, oh, this can't be for me. Surely not. Maybe a little bit of it, but not all of it. I know my heart, and I guess you know yours. And the big question, which, as I was reading through this, I was just going, is this possible? Is this possible? And the way Jesus responds, I guess, to our hearts is he kind of moves us on a bit. And he firstly kind of practically illustrates, if you like, the theory of what he's just been teaching. And he does that with these four illustrations of love coming up now in verse 29 through to 30. Let's look at those if we can. Four illustrations of love. So firstly, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him. The other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Thirdly, give to everyone who asks you. Fourthly, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Now, let's see if we can. Remember those two ways of responding that we began uh, looking at just a, a few moments ago. How do you respond to those who are hostile towards you? You either respond, don't you, by paying back uh, them over and over again in a kind of vengeful way. So, for example, you know, let's imagine you go to a Starbucks tomorrow morning. You're there in the queue waiting for your latte, whatever you choose anyway. And someone cuts in on you. It's like coffee shop road rage or queue rage. And they push you in front of you in the queue. What do you do? Now, if you take the first approach, you go outside... You slash the tyres of their car, you smash in all the windows, you get a pot of paint, you pour it all inside over all the upholstery. That's vengeance, isn't it? But there could be perhaps a bit more, and let me encourage you this way, a more equitable kind of just response if you can. You know, and it's known in the Old Testament as the lex talianus. That is the law of equitable return or retaliation. And that is essentially what the law of the Old Testament would teach. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, and all that kind of stuff. But it's so far ahead of vengeance. And just imagine if that law of equitable return were to be enacted the whole way through the world, in every area of life. The world would be a better place if that were true. We've seen around the world, haven't we, I guess, uh, recently of... 
uh, examples where that hasn't been the case. And there have been awful uh, situations of vengeance occurring around the world. It's not, it's not pretty at all. And it should sicken us, rightly so. But imagine if we were to take that rule, that law of equitable return, as, as we see in the Old Testament. Someone pushes you in front of you now in, in the queue in Starbucks tomorrow morning, and what do you do? You sit down beside them, you sip on your coffee, and you note in your mind they're about to get up for the toilet. So what do you do? You jump in straight away, don't you? Just before they get there, woof, you're in. Lock the door. And you probably stay there for half an hour, just to make sure there's an equitable return, and it's just. And there they are, bursting outside. You know, that, that would be the natural response, wouldn't it? And you maybe even justify, as you, as you sit in the locked toilet, going, this is fair, this is right, I've done the just thing, they'll learn from this, it's a good thing. I've done. And you're kind of patting yourself on the back. But the question that Jesus would throw back to you then is, is it loving? Is it loving? Are you loving your enemy? Jesus, in his authority, you see, is stepping over, not stepping over, but he's over the law. And he's encouraging people in the Sermon on the Plain to, to if you like, go so much further. And we see that. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. See, if we took the, if you like, the law of vengeance, what would you do if someone slaps you on the cheek? You chop their head off. If you took the law of equitable return, if someone slaps you on the cheek, you slap one back. Just one. And you could go through all of those occurrences, uh, those four examples, and, and see what those normal practices would look like. But Jesus is saying, no, there's something bigger, there's something better, there's something more radical and loving here. Turn the other cheek. But the question comes back at this point, doesn't it? Is Jesus saying, hey, hang about, there's no right to kind of personal defence here? Is he saying you've got no right to your property? I mean, you look at that one, give to everyone who asks you. Can I have your car, Andy? Yeah? Is that what he's saying? No, you see, what he's commanding here is the attitude. He's pointing to the heart and he's saying it's not to be vengeful. You're not to seek justice on your own. That's my job. Rather, you ought to have a heart of loving, of generosity, of giving. Someone burgles your house and takes all your possessions. Yes, in your heart you'll be thinking, I want to get them back. I want to be vengeful. I want to seek justice. But what Jesus is teaching here is, is more than that. He's saying, you've got to have your heart right. And how you view your possessions really matters to me. That they're not an idol to you. You don't worship them and find security in them. That should all come to me. Jesus is teaching here right to the core of our beings, our hearts. And the ultimate expression, if you like, of the four illustrations that he's just made comes in this verse, verse 31. And it's a command. I've isolated it as one point because I think it's really important. Some people describe it as his golden rule in this whole sermon. And it says this, do to others... As you would have them do to you. But I know my heart. And I guess you know yours. And this is so difficult. But these are the ethics that Christ has called you to if you are a Christian here today. 
Interestingly, all the other formations of this little phrase, this sentence, do uh, to others as you would have them do to you, they actually predate Christianity, predate Christ by many, many hundreds of years, but in a different formulation. They were always put in the negative. So many people would always read this as like this. Do not do to others what you would not want them to do to you. Which essentially is self-protection. Don't punch someone in the Starbucks queue, otherwise you might get punched back. Yeah? And it's wise. There's a kind of like sensible way of living about that, isn't there? But Jesus states it in the positive and commands his followers to apply this in their hearts and lives. Do to others as you would have them do to you. It's radically loving. This is how you are to treat people regardless of how they treat you. It's not passive, rather it is positively loving towards others. Do to others. And it feels totally unnatural, doesn't it? But Jesus commands it. And again, I want to ask the question, is it possible? That's what's all on all our lips. We're kind of, you don't know this guy in my office. That's what some of you are thinking. You don't know the, the, the lady that lives down the road from me. It's not possible with her. I looked for a good illustration for this. And I have to say I found quite a few. But one story stood out. And let me tell it to you. I did nick this completely, and I'm, I'm very happy about that. Um, but here we go. The story of Eric Honecker. In 1989, the Berlin Wall came down, and the most hated man in the whole of East Germany was the ex-communist uh, leader. His name was Eric Honecker. He was utterly despised. He was, he was rejected by all the members of even the Communist Party, who, which he led. He was thrown out of his palatial villa, And he ended up being destitute and actually homeless on the streets of Berlin, only about a month after the war came down. Then came along a man called Uwe Homer. And he was a church minister in North Berlin. And he and his colleagues, they heard about Hanukkah and his wife, and that they were destitute and they were homeless. And they actually ran a a hostel for homeless people. But it was full. And so Uwe Homer went home to his family and he said to his wife and his ten children, we must love this man and this woman and they must come and stay with us. And therefore the family welcomed uh, Uwe and Margot uh, Honecker, uh, sorry, they they welcomed in uh, Eric and his wife uh, into their home. But the one thing that, uh, when I was reading about this, that there is this amazing, uh, it's, it's a sublime irony that goes on with this story, and it is incredible. Because Margot Honecker, the lady that was invited in, she was destitute, she was homeless. She was in charge of the education system of East Germany for 25 years before the date of the, the, the war coming down. And the thing about the education system of East Germany, it was utterly discriminatory. If you were religious or you disabled, you couldn't get to university at all. Jewish, Christian, Catholic, no one went to, hardly anyone went to university. But Uwe Homer was there with his wife. Uh, They had ten children. They were all very academically able. Eight of them have applied for university and none of them had got in. And yet they welcomed in this man and this woman into their home. They were now caring essentially for their enemy, 
the one who would absolutely destroy their hopes and their dreams. Can you imagine how you would feel if someone, an individual, was responsible for you not getting an education, for you not having a job, for you all your future prospects going financially? How would you feel in front of that person? Well, that's the situation of that story. It was totally unnatural, totally unconventional, but by the grace of God, they did good to them. They prayed for them. They blessed them. They gave up their coats, their rooms, their bedrooms for them. And they loved them. They loved their enemies. They essentially applied this golden rule of verse 31. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And this, my friends, is the ethic that we are called to if we are Christian here today. This is the way of life for Christians. And Jesus then explains essentially how radical it is with the following three verses. I don't know if you've seen these, at verse 32 to 34. Is, in essence, he's showing this is how the rest do it, but this is, yeah, this is how the rest do it, but we're to love our enemies. And he's saying you can take no credit for this kind of way of living. Look at this 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is, to, is it to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And he goes on, what, um, if you lend money and so on. One scholar wrote simply this. The mafia does this. The mafia does this. People do good to those who do good to them. Oh, yeah, you know, the mafia lends a, a whole lot of money and, uh, yeah, they expect it back. It's exactly the way that many, many people kind of run their lives. And don't hear this wrong. Jesus is not discouraging what you call a reciprocal morality. That is, you know, it upholds society. Someone does good and you kind of expect a good back. That's absolutely fine. He's not discouraging it. He's just saying there's no credit for it. Everyone should do that. That's kind of a norm, a base norm. But he's saying there is a credit for loving your enemies. And we get that in these last couple of verses, verse 35, just to finish. So he summarizes, love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. C.S. Lewis, in his great book, The, the Four Loves, which is a wonderful uh, read, he, he puts it this way, commenting on this passage. He says, if you marry someone for the money, it's mercenary. But if you marry someone for love, then love is the proper reward. And you see, the proper reward that we're seeing here in verse 35 uh, for loving God and for loving our enemies is the love of God. And it is to know him better. It, that's shown in this, and it says, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. That is, he's saying, if you're to be uh, like the sons, uh, you'll be the sons of the Most High, is to be like the Most High, to be like God. Because you love your enemies, the likeness of Christ becoming more like Jesus is your reward. But again, we finish with this. Can you do it? Can we do it? In the office place, in the workplace, in the streets tomorrow. No. But apart from God, no. But with God, yes. It is only made possible through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that is why this is so radical. There's nothing in our world like this. 
The basis of this love, of course, is found in Christ, it's encouraging Christ, and it's made possible through Christ's Spirit dwelling in us. And if we consider ourselves Christians here today, then we have this radical love to offer the people around us. First and foremost, the, the radical love that God has loved us who have been in hostility towards him. But also the radical love that loves our enemies. Even if they choose to do whatever they seem to want to do. The basis of that love is not plucked from the sky. We're, we're to be, last verse, be merciful just as your, as your father is merciful. He's been supremely merciful in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to be very, I'd love to speak more about this, but I want to be very clear at the end. That is, this is a position of vulnerability. This is a position of vulnerability. But also be clear that if you imagine that you have the right to hate, to seek vengeance, then you are in trouble because Christ does not rule your life. Love your enemies. It is utterly impossible. But by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit dwelling in you, it is possible. So let's go and love our enemies. As Christ has loved us. Let's pray as we close. Just a moment of quiet maybe to consider those who perhaps... Uh, have been hostile towards us and those that we really struggle to love, those that we know that we ought to be demonstrating, showing, making them feel that radical love that Christ has loved us and we can love them. Give me just a moment of quiet to pray in the quietness of our hearts.